Agony by Jennifer Rickard To the Red Lady on the St James's omnibus, I sing of men and of the love that slipped from my fingers, velvety pure, ever unsure, I still have your glove. Please reply as to return address via this column, The Man with the Hat. It is a pointless endeavour for a writer to hide her guilty pleasures from her reader, so instead I shall boldly confess my greatest sin here. I love the agony columns. Those personal messages which sit on the second page of every great paper in the City of London, where people write tiny love letters, advertisements for missing relatives, requests for money and other cries from the heart, the great majority written in some kind of cipher that is only intelligible to the single soul in the whole world to whom it is addressed, or to a good detective. There is nothing I love more than a good mystery. As soon as the morning paper lands in our household, I flick through to those cramped little messages and bury my nose in them, ignoring the trials and tribulations of my quarrelsome family, in favour of trying to crack a sentence, the meaning of a name, the scrambling of letters. I memorise them, muse on them, and I read every reply and lack of reply, until, despite the coded names, I feel I know these people better than my own screeching mess of a family. Today was a red lady and a man with a hat. Nothing interesting, but... Velvety pure echoes through my mind as I carry on the typical day of a young lady, practising the pianoforte, replying to correspondence, and getting measured for that cumbersome wedding dress. There is nothing interesting, nothing interesting, until the next day. To the man with the hat, you cannot sing of that which you do not know. Keep the glove as a memento. K. Who is Kay? Why can she not give the gentleman her address? Is she married, living in seclusion, merely happy to part with a meaningless article of clothing? And yet she encourages him, a memento indeed. I sit at breakfast, quite wrapped up in my little theories and ignoring the world around me, but the world will not ignore me. Clara, my father says, should you see Mr. Princeton today? You have not seen him in several days, Mother says. He will think you are having second thoughts. My dearest heart starts another agony column. Oh, to be called that. I forget my family in the columns. Kay, you have lain down the glove. You wish to duel, I believe. And yet I am already stabbed in the heart. Perhaps I shall sing like the swan, a beautiful note before instant death. Or, perhaps you shall be kind and stay your blade. Meet me, my red lady. Man with the hat. Mr. Princeton and I walk the cold, narrow paths of Russell Square, my mother accompanying us, and he presses my gloved hand, full to the brim with chatter about our life, his life, our future children's lives. And I look down at my shabby glove and wonder, did Kay have such a glove? Or was it velvet, 
velvety pure. Was it red, like her? What of her was red? Her dress? Her lips? Did she have autumnal red hair? Did it peek out in stray strands from under her hat as she stood on the omnibus, the glove falling unnoticed from her lap? Did the gentleman recover the glove, or did he steal it, in the hopes of seeing that singular shade of hair just once more? Mr Princeton says, Only a week until our wedding, my love. He does not have red hair. It is muddy brown, like the puddles we avoid, like my shabby glove in his bone-white grasp. I do not like it. To the man with the hat, If it is a jewel, I concede to you. Keep your memory of me as your prize. Death is too expensive to waste on a soul such as I. It is cheaper to forget. K. Oh, K. She begs him to forget her, but continues to respond, and in such a fashion. I spiral through our rooms, the paper in front of my nose, as mother and my sisters gossip about the spring flowers that will adorn my newly married head. It is cheaper to forget, I think, all day. K. Your glove in my hands, yet you grip my heart. Forgetting is impossible, and comes only through death. It is double the cost. Surely it would be cheaper for all concerned if I were simply allowed to look upon your face a single, last time. E. E. He has an initial. What does it stand for? Edward. Eric. I really think the light blue ribbon is too much, my mother says in the milliner's, as I twirl in my wedding dress obediently, thinking only of names that start with E. I wonder what colour Mr. Princeton likes. Clara, do you know? Clara? Edwin. Edgar? Edmund. It was strange, muses my mother, how you met Mr. Princeton, most unconventional, but I suppose it worked out in the end. Elliot, Elijah, Ernest. Clara, says my mother. Clara! E. The cost to look upon me is unaffordable, but, it seems, unavoidable. Russell Square at twelve. K. Impossible. Russell Square. My Russell Square. I pace the ground like that mangy lion we saw in London Zoo, where Mr Princeton roared with laughter and tried to poke it through the bars with a dry stick. I pace and pace, and suddenly it is half-past eleven and I must run if I am to see the red woman and the mysterious E. And so I dash out of the house, quite hatless, quite mad. It is wet in the square, and I sit restlessly on a bench and watch the proceedings. In a short while, I see him, or at least a man in a top hat. He is handsome, because, of course, he has to be. I could not have my protagonists be otherwise. It may not be him, but it may be. He has the same restlessness as myself, and he waits, he hovers, he bites at his nails. He waits, and I wait, 
both anticipating that flash of red approaching through the sodden trees from dress or lips or hair. But of course, it never comes, and we waited so long. K. To break my heart must be easy, for you did it yesterday with nary a word passing from your lips. I would pay, I have paid, thrice over for that single look, and yet was still denied. Will I be denied the entrance to heaven as well? Your glove remains within my grasp, for all I long to throw it into the fire. E. Do you remember, Mr. Princeton says, over a blue and white china teacup, how we met? I do remember. I remember that I had liked his brown eyes then, considered them dark and enigmatic, but very soon he was no longer a mystery. You answered my agony column so sweetly, says Mr. Princeton. It meant so much after the heartbreak I have just suffered. The tea in my cup is brown and muddy, muddy as his hair, as his eyes. Is there something wrong, my dove? Mr. Princeton asks. You seem quiet. So I open my mouth and speak. The china clinks loudly in the room after I have spoken. It is the only thing that breaks a silence so complete. E. Contact me no more. You know not what you ask. It would cost us both everything. The glove must go to the fire. K. But why, Clara? My mother says through tears. Mr. Princeton was a perfect match. Behind her, my sisters rip up the discarded wedding bouquets and throw blossoms over one another, laughing. That is all they are good for now. I know it is time. In the afternoon I go to the paper and write my own notice. They do not question me there. They know me of old. E. I am no K. I am cheaper to look upon. I may not open the gates to heaven... My hand could not fit that glove you hold so tightly. But I shall be in Russell Square at twelve. C. I am in Russell Square at twelve. I wear a dress of red, although perhaps it was her hair that was red, or her soft lips, and I am in error. But I wear it regardless, and wait for my man in the hat. If he does not come... I shall return once more to the agony columns. If he does, perhaps I shall return to them anyway. I do love a good mystery. And then he appears through the trees, the handsome man, the unknowable E with the hat on his head, and our eyes meet. And after a moment, he smiles. A glove, velvet and red, just as I predicted, falls from his grasp and into a muddy brown puddle. And that is where it stays. Hometown Debut Written by Jess Warsdale Read by Fergus Rattigan Keen is a shiver of denim with a plastic bag of canned good times. Deck chair stripped, it gouges heavy into his fingers so they bulge white at the tops. 
Occasionally, some acquaintance of his mother cackles by and comments on him breezily before re-emerging with the dregs of the central wine fridge. Along the street, a family with kids unable for midnight sets off New Year fireworks early, and a crack of gold sparks splits the bite-cold evening, leaps over the brooding hulk of suburbia. Rob is late, but for once Keen doesn't mind. Since the summer he's coexisted with this bubbling anticipation, the simmer of it fizzing through his skin. A little longer. His mam had slipped him at twenty when she'd heard Cathy's son was home. God love him, she said. The lad deserves a good night. What's it been? Five months now? A scatter of messages from Rob since he left. Small grey suitcase in the belly of a, the air coach. One, a photo of the view from his halls, all tower angles and pigeon-popped sky. The other, splintered videos thumbing with unknown faces, picked out in silver glitter and branching lewd drinks. Caption, You should come sometime. He read it repeatedly, eyeballing white space between letters and speculating whether Rob was just being polite. His own videos back would have been of cisterns, slip-joint pliers, plate covered by another plate, disc of curdled gravy you could peel with the back of a fork. Keane has never been to London, but imagines it as one huge brick and steel monster, huffing hungry breath up escalators and through sour tones deep in plague pit dirt and bone. So even though the party's not far, the drive there will be something. They'll take looping back roads and he'll... He will pop his feet on the dashboard and fill the car with, Oh, just a band I caught at Workman's a few weeks back. Experimentally, you've not heard of them. Not fully a lie. He would have gone if anyone had asked. Rob will talk about college in England and say, It's fine, like, but it's not the same. They'll skip the party to drink cans at the beach, throw pebbles at the empties like they used to. He gets a flushed and queasy feeling just thinking about it. But when the battered Corsa swings into view, it's not just his friend in the car. It barely stops moving and the girl has the passenger door open, glides herself out and clamps him in a one-way hug. The famous Kean. She's heron sleek, with a fan for her mouth and the expansive manner of someone whose place in the world has never been challenged. Behind her, Rob crouches half in, half out of the car door. Taking great interest in the pavement, he seems sharper as if his new city face has no time for the inefficiencies of emotion. Features contorted from sharing there with thousands of harried strangers, the spit and choke of their lungs circulating directly back into yours. Slouching across the back seat, Keen watches squat houses and tree trunks flash by like Morse code. Fat smears of moss line the bottom of the window, and there's a corpse-sweet smell of wet soil and rot. Rob's mum's Cathy's car, then, left to fester undriven. Chloe is non-stop noise. She's booked a flight last minute, not told anyone until she was belted in, exit row and expected an airport meet-cute. Totally spontaneous, but that's so me, she says, and I've never been to Southern Ireland before. With pearl nails tight on Rob's left eye, she wiggles contentedly and gazes out the bird-pocked windscreen at the salt brew seafront and the derelict hotel. So romantic. Fulcher Ireland's wet dream you are. Staying long. The second. Don't want to impose on Rob's dad. We're flying back together. There'll be no time then. Keen stares resolute ahead, fixed on the breadcrumb trail of cat's eyes along the unspooling road. 
Dad doesn't mind, says Rob. I doubt he really notices, to be honest. The whole town knows about Tom. They sigh about him in the pension queues and dally when they pass his house. A terrible thing, they croon. A terrible, terrible thing. They are no longer certain to which thing they're referring. The earthquake or the app. Everyone has heard the stories. Walled stacks of newspaper encrusting every room in small squeaks and itchings. The kitchen furred with dirty plates. Neighbours drop in mockish casseroles, which, it's rumoured, Tom decants to Tupperware, labelled with descriptions of whoever has made them. Evenings tallied by defrosting lucky dips marked with... With the hair or teeth? Rob does not know this. Or maybe he does. When he left, he slammed a shutter on everything. The party is at Moira's. Her parents work in tax assurance, exchanging finite hours of existence for dragon hordes of cash and an annual apportioned 22 days in which to create meaningful experiences. They forgot she snuck the spare key and, as their tile glow flakes away, are set for an unsettling January cluedoing mysterious breakages and suspected poltergeists. Chloe is armed with airport gin and a paper bag of limes, and the kitchen swallows her as soon as they arrive. Rob takes his coat upstairs and Kean pads after him, leaving tepid cans by the heap of bags in the hall. The sunset glow of the streetlights makes shadow puppets of the furniture and the cairn of coats on the bed. He wipes his hand down his shirt, trying to work out the crease of his mum's ironing. Through the door he can hear Chloe introducing herself to everyone. He didn't mention a girlfriend. I never said she was. Rob starts picking up and replacing the various tubes and beauty items on the dresser, arranging them so they descend in height order. And she'd agree with that view, would she? We don't do labels. Ooh la la, how very modern. Look, Dad likes her, okay? Said he can't stop worrying about me. Nice girl, it might help. It's what he wants. Carpeted, Keen takes a steady half-step towards him, as if approaching a nervous horse. And is it what you want? A drowsy buzz of sun-breeze summer flickers between them, rememberings of heat and sand-worn cotton, sour-tongued chips and wheeling gulls. Keen, we... There's a loud pounding of feet and three girls barrel in the room, slowing their jackets like reptilian scales reveal beetle-jeweled colours beneath. Oh, lads, don't let us disturb you. You work away there. Don't get it on on the coat's mind. Very funny, says Rob. The girls heave laughter and clutch each other and trip down the stairs with naggins tucked in tight waistbands. Rob takes a determined inhale and follows them out. Chloe stands encircled by an orchestra of people, conducting conversation with a shot glass weaved around imperiously. She shimmies across the lino to seize Rob in a movie star smooch under the kitchen strip lights. Caught off guard, he moves his arms uncertain through the air, then settles them around each bare shoulder blade. Their bodies look so neat and beautiful together, like clean teaspoons stacked in a drawer. The hormoned mob hoots delight. Keen recognises most of them from school. The ones at college in Dublin are broadly the same, perhaps augmented with a confrontational hairstyle. They stand in cliques looking self-consciously edgy and making brazen noises about socialism. 
Others have moved away and taken the opportunity to construct an entirely new personality, now making its Bambi-legged hometown debut, swathed in velvet and bewildering eyeliner. He himself is unchanged, essentially an embarrassing continuation of the person he was in school. He spends a long time sliding up to conversations and trying to smile his way into them, until it becomes apparent that he has no controversial opinions to trade. Then he does the circuit of the house, holding two drinks and looking around studiously as if searching for someone, downs one of them and starts the process again. This is the party that slips into teenage folklore, that with necromancer sleight of hand will be reanimated around pub tables from a pulpy mass of swollen pupils, clicking jaws on glass cheeks. Bottles pass fist to fist, necks sticky from yammering mouths, and they drink out of bowls and pans when the glasses are gone. Three girls black out in the yard and stay there, unnoticed until hard blue sky and icy concrete wrap at their skulls. And at the howling heart of it is Chloe, now in a tactile gaggle, salting margaritas, now staccatoing punchlines through a careless cigarette haze, now getting the door to more bodies who pour into the hallway and brush off Rob's introductions. Sure, I met her already, some woman. Sickening, says Kean, lurking into snackbox Larry, who exudes a linger of a fry not quite masked by panic spray links. They've been backed into the alcove by the kitchen bins, and the back door, the cupboard full of pegs, bags of life and empty margarine tubs. Look at her there. Who? No, listen, who does she think she is? All over him. Just turning up like that. He takes one long swig of an empty can, and Snacker sees his chance, mumbles, Another! and lumbers away into the human soup that broils around them, the whole house thrumming with blurred sounds and pale ovals that swell about and grin with shining teeth. Maybe this is life from now on. Tonight is just a trailer, existing behind a wall of thick glass, clammy with desperate handprints, the people he knows escaping to worlds beyond his reach. Until one day he realises that eternity is just him and his man. Dinner in the warming drawer. The puce mass in front of him spins kaleidoscope triangles that accumulate to form Rob's face. Right there. And he raises one arm in clumsy surprise, grating of stubble on the on his palm. All right, Ken, says Rob, stepping back quickly. Chloe was right then. He's loud with her name now, pleased with himself and his conclusive ability to attract... Blandy popular foreign girls. The famous Keen, yeah, that's me. Bono without sunnies, handy with a basin wrench. What? She said you might need looking in on here. Rob passes him a pint of water, filmy with crisp, greasy fingerprints. What kind of person brings their own limes to parties anyway? The water is tepid and swimming with crumbs, but he drinks it, glad of something to occupy his hands. Rob is still standing there, watching. He is very aware that through the glass, his open mouth must be horribly distorted, like a thick-lipped carp. He wipes his sleeve across his face. Wash. We're leaving soon, says Rob. Are you all right to make your own way back? Fine, yeah. He kicks at the bin, gnarly toe poking through a hole in his runners. You're being so weird. Are you jealous or something? Of you? 
No. It's her. His insides jolt. A great writhing eel churning through his guts. A few jagged breaths, then he grapples for the yard door and pulls Rob through it. Outside, the air is brittle. As if he could grasp it and snap it apart. On the concrete, a fox has disemboweled a rubbish bag, spewing chicken trays and puckered orange peels, now tingling with frost. The throaty drift of peat smoke, and under every chimney are people that belong there. Inside, someone yells, One minute! They're standing so close now, in the dark and the cold. What would it take? One step? Two? Burnished hot, slow silence, and Rob's gaze like a physical pressure on his face. He closes the door behind them, mutes the midnight countdown. A heart-wrenching flash and crack of sparks. This could be the start or end of everything. But at least it's real. Balancing Act by Tomek Mozakowski. Mysteriousness to 96%, sexual drive to 87%, considerateness 93%. I step back while the model recalibrates. Its power light is pulsing. Outside the window, the stars are hidden by the fog. It's the fog that's got us hidden indoors. That's our world now. Indoors. Debs, the model says, alert now. Debs, you must be cold. The voice startles me. Deeper than the last one. It whips a blanket off the chair, the green one, and puts it around my shoulders, clasps it together at my chest. Its other hand goes to my chin. It holds my chin in a little pinch. Delicate. Commanding. The model's eyes have gone somewhere between green and brown. It invites me to dream that colour. It's not good to be cold. To be cold is to not feed your soul. What? The model puts its finger to my lips, shushes me, strokes my cheek. Its hair is long, down past its stubble. The looks have to match the personality. Now I'm thinking this one's a bit young for me, actually. Uh, listen, I say. But the model shushes me again. Can you feel that, it says, putting my hand on its peck. Oh, the heartbeat is there. It's a good approximation. I wonder how it's done. My heart? Your heart? Okay. Native stop calibrate, I say. And the model stops, hangs its head as if in shame. I reach for the pad, take a step back, even though it's limp before me. I don't need a heart-to-heart. -heart. Not like that. A reduced mysteriousness to 35%. Sexual drive to 43%. Considerateness, 73%. Adjust some more. Down-to-earthness, up to 80%. Friendliness, 85%. Listening ability, 70%. It's recalibrating. Companionship has arrived on your doorstep, they said. Wait it out with your model. Three evenings it's been trying to get this right. The instructions are simple enough. Keep experimenting. 
until you find the sweet spot. The blogs were more helpful. Find the balance, they said. Something that will keep you interested mid to long term because the shorter, more sexual builds get tiring. There were even suggested mods on Reddit, but I wanted to do it myself. Attempt one was a riot. Won't put fun-loving at 100% again, no way. Not after the thing opened my only champagne, sprayed me with it, told me I was a drag. Had to message the neighbours, say sorry for the noise. They told me not to worry. Being single through all this must be tough. Smiley face, enjoy your model. Attempt two, I gave in. Went for a sexual build. We'll be returning to that one, but my God, you need to spray it with a water bottle once you're done. Attempt five wasn't good. Realism was the strategy for that one. I wanted something like the boyfriends I've had. Middle-aged, like me, a little extra weight, like me. But the thing sat watching TV, hand in pants. It tasted of crisps when I kissed it. Attempt set a seven. Intelligent. Well, that was nice, but I gave it too much intelligence. It got depressed. Sat in the corner, flipping a zippo, telling me we're all just stardust. Attempt 11. A woman. Haven't done that since uni. Not sure I'll be going there again. Attempt 16. A crier. No idea what happened. The, the appearance was right with that one. Roman nose, cleft chin, all the things I like. I mean, I suppose someone else might think find them freakish, but what do I care? We're all sitting at home in our filtered air, waiting for the next six years to pass. It boots up. All right, Deb, it says. Northern, plucky. Fancy a brew? Oh, I say, rubbing my arm. I'm always a little shy at first. Um bit late for that, isn't it? Oh, right. Is it? It's no issue, Deb. We can have a decaf. I don't know if I have decaf, but the model's rooting around in my cupboards. It's greying on the sides. So I quite like that. Checkered shirt. Good touch. Here we go, it says, waggling two tea bags and a little cha-cha dance. I snort. <laughs> it's an accident. It pops the kettle on. This your gaff? It's all right. I step into the kitchen, although the kitchen is just a corner in the apartment. My bedroom is in the other corner, the office in the third. The packaging for the model is folded by the door. I'll have to chew it out tomorrow morning. I don't like using the machine, all that sucking and hissing, reminding me of the toxic air just on the other side. Well, work's looked after me. They've, they've set me up nicely, I see, but regretted. Small talk about work, honestly. Well, I don't want to get into it. Not after attempt 21. Ha, I made that one politically engaged. Big mistake. It refused to make out with me after we disagreed on the necessity of market reform in Fug era Britain. Hmm, it says leaning against the kitchen counter. The checkered shirt is open. There's a grey t-shirt underneath. Under that, a bit of a belly. These details are really clever, aren't they? What's my name then? Uh, Frank, I say. I have no idea why. 
I walk with it to the sofa, bashful still, and catch myself in the mirror. I'm still in my work get-up. It's important to be dressed up, for the video calls, of course, but for sanity, too. Distinction. That's what we need in our days. So, Frank, I say, as it hands me the tea. I really don't think I've got decaf in, but apparently we're pretending. <laughs> Tell me about yourself. Well, it says, or he says, I should probably say now. He paws at his cheek, and I like the way he sat. Legs not too open, mug in his lap. The eyes, they're bright blue. I haven't seen blue like that in a long time. I grew up outside Manchester, Bolton Way. My dad was a carpet layer. You ever layered a carpet, Debs? Oh, it's something, I tell you. Scoring up fabric, pushing down into the edge, everything taut, beautiful work, carpet laying. Native pause calibrate, I say. You're not supposed to calibrate mid-simulation. It's better to let the interaction progress a bit. Ride it out, is what the blogs advise. Don't become a tweaker. Just this once, though. Chattiness down to 75%. Sexual drive up to 60%. I like this one. Might as well usher us along. Native unpause. All right, Debs. Enough about me. What I really want to know is how a woman of your calibre gets through the day looking that good. I'll be checking myself out, not doing any work. Frank, I say, a little slap on his wrist. He puts his mug down, turns towards me. He moves his leg up and rests his foot across the other knee. Bit blokey, but the openness is welcome. What? It's true. And I do like you. I like a bigger woman. Native pause calibrate. Chauvinism down to 3%. All women, in fact. I cherish them, Debs. A woman deserves respect. And I would never make any assumptions. No way. Good, I say. Anyway, let's talk about something else. Why don't I ask you how you like your eggs, he says, taking my hand in his. I laugh. <laughs> We're going there. All right. But who says you'll be around long enough to make my eggs? And powdered. What else can we get? Frank nods like he knows about it. He can't. He's a machine. Eggs pre-fug. Oh, I can remember them. A proper yolk. The music was better then too. The stuff they make today, it's too calculated. You like music, Debs? He gets up, goes to the wall screen, plays some U2. Dance with me, he says, already pulling me up. His arms are hard, but there's a layer of soft over the muscle. It feels honest. We one step, two step, slowly on the rug in the middle of the room. The lights dim, it feels like. This is nice, very nice. I hum a little into his shoulder. Except you too, not you too. Native pause calibrate. Music taste to 98%, make note, 90s boy bands especially. I can hear the whirring inside him. Here, Debs, he says. Let's put on a bit of boy's own, eh? The best stuff. They don't make it like this anymore. Oh, Frank. No matter what starts playing. Music. 
it takes me back, especially this stuff. Being a young girl, back when we could go outside. I saw them once, boy's own, in a stadium when I was seven. I'll tell Frank about it, maybe once we're back on the sofa, after sex. I'm going to enjoy the sex with this one. I think I've found the balance. It's my favourite, my absolute favourite, he says. His temple to my temple, our fingers intertwined. Mine too, Frank. I see. It's barely a whisper. You're a bit of all right, Debs. A bit of all right. I laugh a little in my mouth, then swallow it. I'm smiling. Hold me, Frank. I'm here now, Debs. I've been so alone. We sway together. I'm falling into him. I want to forget this world. We all just want that. I don't know how much time passes, but it's not enough. It's never enough. It's Ronan's voice. He's a real crooner, he says. Hmm. So unique, those lungs. He's going on a bit. Makes me weep, he says. And I think he starts actually crying. There's a snuffle in my ear over Ronan. I didn't like his solo stuff as much. Native pause calibrate. Chattiness reduced to 10%. Just to shut him up. After this, no more adjustments. Not going to be a tweaker. There, Frank. Now we can just enjoy the moment. I go temple to temple again. Put my hand on his shoulder. I liked how he was leading. Frank? Frank isn't moving. His head's gone limp. I flick him on the shoulder. That's when I notice his grey hair is losing its colour. His features are melting away. Frank? Error 203. Hashtag value. Reboot required. For God's sake, I say. It doesn't say anything back. I hug it anyway. Sway with it a little. I keep swaying with it until the weight of it falls into me and I lose my balance for a moment. He hears something about a mind going south. He, he and his wife used to drive south to Florida every year. They would stay a week, visit a nearby Christmas shop, stroll along the beach. One September he found a, a baby turtle stranded during low tide. He took it to a lifeguard. It was an endangered species. He hoped he'd given the turtle a new chance of life, that it was as big as a kitchen table now, safe in the ocean. He's in an unfamiliar room, where everyone is, is dressed as if they're at church. He glances down and sees that he's wearing his brown suit. He feels his head. Wearing his hat indoors would be unforgivable. Someone should have told him. 
but his head is bare. W was there a hat rack in the hallway? Are you all right? A girl's voice says. She sounds far away, but he realizes she's beside him. They're, they're sitting on cushioned metal chairs, and he's holding her hand. She's a redhead, like his granddaughter, Christine. But she's not Christine. He, he sees Christine across the room, talking to a woman in a, in a navy blue dress. His son was in the navy, one of his sons. The, the other was uh, in the, uh, the merchant marine. I found a turtle, he says. Perhaps she could tell the lifeguard. I remember. Daddy sent me pictures. She doesn't get up. He wonders why he, her father had, had photographs of the turtle. Is he wearing his hat? He feels his head again. Can I get you anything? The girl asks. Her hand is tiny, weightless. He used to lift weights. He could bench press his weight, 220 pounds. He was retired and, and, and tuning pianos at a high school when he benched his weight on a dare. And the boys never called him an old man again. He's still holding the girl's hand. Have you known Christine Long? He says. She looks at him, and he sees the same green and wide-set eyes that his granddaughter has. Yes, she says simply. His sons were boys when they went to war. Uh, one was stationed in the Pacific, and the other the Atlantic. Going across, they called it. He had to give permission for his one in the Pacific to go to war. Signing his name that day was, was one of the hardest things he'd ever done. You know, his youngest son was only 17. Is there something I need to sign? He asks. The girl seems puzzled. She, she glances around the room. I don't think so. She says, we can ask Christine later. There are stands of flowers around the room, mostly roses. His wife's favorite flower. My wife grows roses, he tells the girl. She nods and uh, clears her throat. She gives every rose bush a name. Flower names. Yeah, um... Violet, uh, can... her voice trails off. You know my wife? The girl looks at her lap, picks a piece of lint from her skirt. She's wearing black. She seems to be having trouble swallowing. In church, he once helped a woman who'd fainted. He'll get up now and help this girl. She squeezes his hand. Are you okay? Do you need something? He senses a, a change in the feel of the room. Something crackling through it like static. 
when he was a safety engineer, he, he taught linemen the dangers of electricity. It won't respect you, but you have to respect it, he cautioned. He glances around. He sees too many people in the room. When did it become so crowded? There, There is distant music, too. Uh, a piano, unaccompanied. I play the piano, he says. That's you, the girl says. A recording of you playing. I taught myself by ear. She nods again. My father recorded you a, a few years back. Her nose has, has turned pink, like one of his wife's roses. The one he calls peony, he thinks. Her eyes are, are, are pink at the corners, too. Fire marshal, he says. Too many people. It's okay, she tells him. Everyone is wearing black, blue, or brown, except one person, an old man in a gray suit with sleeves that are too long. <laughs> Pennies from heaven, he says. A different room now, large, uh, high-ceilinged. How did he get here? He can't remember church. He is definitely in church, on the front pew, sitting between Christine and the girl. When I visited her, she always knew more church gossip than I did, Reverend Benson is saying. A few chuckles drift through the room. Someone has, has died. There's a coffin near the altar. A spray of Red roses spills over the top. They're the color of his wife's firefighter, Hybrid T-Rose, the one she calls Amaryllis. She was a live wire, Reverend Benson says. She was twice my age and had twice my energy. He remembers attending the funeral of a lineman who stepped on a live wire during a snowstorm. Corley Newsom. You can't see electricity, but it can see you, he'd tell his men. Before the utility company had a full-fledged safety program, he headed its first aid team. And when he got to Corley, Corley was already gone. He had to find something non-conductive to move the lineman. If he touched Corley directly, the shock would pass through his body too. Christine has a hand on one of his arms, and the girl has a hand on the other. Laughter. He didn't hear what was said. <laughs> Worried about black spot on her roses, but they always looked beautiful to me. I asked her once if they were using performance-enhancing drugs. <laughs> Performing. As a young man, he, he could juggle do handstands, backflips. He, he formed a circus with three of his brothers and, and traveled through the Virginia foothills with two horses. His specialty was balancing one foot on the back of each horse as they trotted in a circle. Yeah, respect. You had to respect yourself. 
the horses. Electricity. Electricity. Yeah, when he was born, it hadn't yet made its way to the countryside. Then it became one more thing you could die of. Christine and, and the girl are, are dabbing at their eyes. He hears sniffles behind him. His wife always cried when a letter arrived from one of their sons serving overseas. The airmail stamp was the color of blood. <laughs> Featured a, a plane that didn't actually exist. A phantom plane. Was he supposed to sign something? Had he signed his younger son's death sentence? He and another man had to drag Corley's body through the snow. Corley, with two children and a wife at home, who would tell them? The snow crunched beneath Corley's weight. It was a sound that had haunted him since. Two children. During the war, his wife spread playing cards on the kitchen table each morning, trying to read the fate of each son. The, the Jack of Hearts stood for uh, their older, fairer son, and the Jack of Clubs was a reference to the younger, dark-haired son. All of the cards had meanings, she said. Uh, he never paid much attention, but he knew that the, the eight and the nine of spades represented accidents, misfortunes, bad luck. Did he say something? You're not supposed to talk in, in church. He looks at Christine and, and then at the other girl. Christine is listening to the minister. The other girl is looking into her lap, rubbing her thumbnail with her index finger. He remembers his youngest son doing the same thing. He must not have spoken. At Corley's, the words wouldn't come. Corley's wife stood with the screen door against her back, gripping her apron. Her face was white. Gardenia, she knew, felt the words that crackled in the silence. What was the problem with Gardenia? Oh, he remembered. Gardenia was the white rose, the rose that reminded him of the snow. Church has ended and two men are helping him navigate some icy steps. He hears Corley's body being dragged. Electricity was hiding there in the snow. Behind him he hears Christine talking to the girl. Oh, he has good days and bad days, Christine is saying. She, she has cold, he thinks. Hey, bundle up, he says. Christine pats his back. You're fine, Granddaddy, she says. You have your overcoat, and this nice man is letting you wear his hat. Oh, a man needs a hat, he agrees. The men walk him to a car that heads a line of cars. He, he sits between them in the front seat. Christine and the girl take places in the back. The driver turns the engine on, but they don't move for a long time. He remembers a neighbor dying of 
carbon monoxide poisoning when her car's exhaust system malfunctioned. She, she belonged to the same garden club as his wife did, had given his wife a yellow rose bush on Easter. Daffodil, he whispers. The boulevard, he hadn't realized they were already moving. He sees a, a red light at the intersection, but the driver runs it. A, a police car is positioned at a diagonal as they pass. Maybe the policeman will pull the driver over. Respect. You had to respect the rules of the road. Horses. Electricity. Their home was, was wired for electricity the, the summer his youngest son was born. He remembers that they, they could only turn on one light at a time. In the early days, his wife feared there would be a fire. In case of fire, get the children to safety and don't go back, he told her. Do your best not to get disoriented. Horses would do that, get disoriented, return to a burning barn. I explained to him that your father is ill and couldn't come, but I'm not sure he understood. Christine is saying. He, he feels bad. He, he didn't know the, the girl's father was ill. No wonder her, her nose and eyes are pink. Should, should he say something now or, or wait till they get where they're going? Nine of spades, he says. <laughs> Granddaddy always liked to play cards, remember? Christine says. The man to the right of him is, is wearing a leather overcoat that crackles every time he shifts position. Was, was there something about a fire? They approach another intersection, another police car. The driver sails past. Another red light, he says. He knows where he is, Christine's friend says. He understands. He wonders what, what there is to understand. You don't run a red light. It, it's a basic rule of defensive driving. They're under a tent with the coffin in front of them. A cold wind shakes the poles holding up the tent. He is between Christine and the girl again, holding their hands. They are all wearing gloves. When did he put on his gloves? Is his hat on? He hopes he has removed it. Beneath their feet is a thick green outdoor carpet covering the snow. It would be easy to trip on it, he thinks. Gardenia. And recite the 23rd Psalm, the Reverend Benson instructs. Did the girl's father die? Christine had said he was ill when the service is over. He'll have to ask. He leadeth me beside still waters, the crowd is saying. Still waters run deep. There was a, a lake near their home, a lake his sons passed as they walked to school every day. He taught both of them to swim at an early age. 
respect. Respect for electricity. Respect for the water. One summer, a, a friend of theirs drowned while trying to save another boy. The friend waded in, couldn't swim. The drowning boy grabbed him in panic, wouldn't let go. He is still holding the girl's hands. He won't let them drown. You don't have to read this, but I hope that you do, by David Guy. Dear Sir, I thought it best to contact you by mail, considering the events of this past week. You don't have to read this, of course. I'm sure you are very busy, after all. But I hope that you do. Perhaps it would do you good to hear an explanation of events from a point of view other than your own. After the events of the dance on Friday night, I'm sure I don't have to explain that in detail, it seems a vital misunderstanding of the importance of our tryst, shall we say, has begun to blossom in your mind. Yes, I enjoyed myself very much, as I hope did you. But I thought a man in your position would have understood, as seemed clear to me, that this was simply an enjoyable dalliance rather than the precursor of something, indeed of anything, deeper or more personally committing. Now it is possible that this misunderstanding arose from the manner of my departure, which I admit was in haste and taken without the necessary politeness which such occasions surely warrant. So please forgive me for my sudden disappearance. Although I should say that the hour was exceedingly late, and indeed not just you, but most of your guests seemed slightly worse for wear by then. Even in my haste, I did still call out a goodbye across the room to you. But it seems that my words did not rouse you sufficiently from your slumber for you to recognise it as my farewell. It seems, however, that my words did indirectly, contribute to our misunderstandings this week, as apparently you were awakened enough by them to have subsequently watched my departure through the windows of your room, catching a glimpse of me fleeing through the gates as if pursued, and I assume this is where your belief that I had been kidnapped or was in some way being held servitude was formed. In point of fact, I was simply hurrying to catch the final carriage of the evening, for it was cold, wet, and a very walk long and a very long walk home for me if I happened to miss it, and I was very much determined not to do so, not least because of the clothes I was wearing. I had not even brought a coat, nor boots, and the thought of my gown being ruined by a mile or more of walking through puddles and mud made me shiver in an anxiety probably unknown to those such as yourself. You have others to worry about such mundane matters as the washing of clothes. Now, having laid out the facts of the evening in question, and 
having made clear that I accept some fault in the misunderstanding that has evidently occurred, I would like to turn to your behaviour in the week since. It is, of course, very flattering to discover that you enjoyed the evident delights of my company so much that you've since been searching the city to find me, or save me, as you have reportedly been putting it. But that does not give you the right to barge uninvited into my home, insult my mother, accost my sisters, and accuse all and sundry of God knows what crimes and misdemeanours against me, an innocent as you kindly put it, although innocent of what I do not know. My mother has been in tears ever since and is simply inconsolable. To have someone of your power and standing insult her so brazenly and with so little foundation was deeply upsetting for a woman of her years and long-avowed patriotism and was, I believe, genuinely shocking to her on a spiritual level. If even half the things she alleges you said to her are true, well, then, I too am truly lost for words. At least, if I'm to search for small mercies, with my mother you were merely verbally abusive. Yet, in your overzealous attempt to save me from my own family, you inflicted, beyond the spiteful insults towards their appearance, such grievous injuries on my two sisters that I fear it will be months before they can walk again. I have never seen wounds of such severity inflicted outside of a wall. And even with months of rest, I'm not sure their feet will ever fully heal. I am truly sorry I was not here when you called, as perhaps all of this upset could have been avoided. Although in my darkest hours, I fear, in fact, it would have been much worse. As it was, I happened to be working when you arrived, which is what you no doubt consider my servitude, but to the rest of us is known simply as employment. Of course now, not only do I have to continue to support myself and my mother or my meagre earnings, but my two crippled sisters too. So, it seems, even if after all this I somehow decided to consent to another one of your parties, there is much less chance of my being able to find time to attend. I suppose I should consider that at least an amusing irony of the whole affair, and one which presumably would have made me laugh if it not for the horror and harm inflicted upon those I love in the service of it. Thank you for the return of my shoe. Please do not call at my house again. Kind regards, Cindy.